And I'm going to read this morning out of um, Luke, the seventh chapter, starting in chapter 36. I want to read this. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And when he went into Pharisees, uh, to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, I'm going to stop here once you understand what this means. So this was not just the average woman who sins. This was been known as a woman of the night. This would have been known as a woman who makes her living, makes her income by selling herself. And so well, this wasn't just an ordinary woman. And so here this woman enters into this house. Now, you would understand the time and the age that Jesus goes to this party, it would probably be more like a banquet. This guy would have put together a banquet. He would have brought an honored guest being Jesus Christ. And bringing this honored guest was supposed to show how awesome and good this man is. Hey, look who my buddies are. Look who my friends are. You should come see. You should come see. And so he puts up this party and he puts up this big celebration. This is possibly done out in a courtyard or in a room designated to this. If he was wealthy, it would have been a big room. And so here Jesus is reclining, and this wouldn't have been kind of the way we eat at the table, right? This wouldn't have been sitting in our chairs. When they recline, they recline. I mean, they laid back, put the sunglasses on, right? You know, they're chilling. And so here, as they're reclining, eating, telling stories, listening, there would have been a lot of talk at this. There would have been an open floor for Jesus to dialogue and talk. Everybody would have come to listen. And so this woman comes in, and as she... As when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now understand, this wasn't typical just like olive oil. This would have been an expensive perfume. This would have been very special. This wouldn't have been cheap. This wouldn't have been something just off the shelf. This would have been something that was a prized treasure that cost a lot. And she brings this flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, now, please understand this term. This isn't just crying. This is weeping. This is unloading your burden. This is emptying your soul. Now, imagine how disruptive this would have been in a dinner party. 50 or 70 guests, 100 guests at this party, and here comes this woman in who everybody knew. Now, that's always interesting to me in a story that everybody knew who she was. Maybe a Double meaning there. But this would have messed up the party. This would have broken the tradition. This would have changed things. This would have begun to draw attention to this woman. And this woman was willing to walk into this room and disrupt things. She was willing to walk into this room and weep loudly. This was probably an uncontrollable thing. I imagine she kind of wanted to walk in and secretly do this. But as her soul emptied and as her heart began to be unburdened, she couldn't withhold it and it just began to pour out in tears upon Jesus' feet. And she began to wipe his feet with her tears and with her hair. And she leaned over and began to kiss his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee had learned who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet or if, if this man was who I thought he was. Now as I read this, I, I, the pride in this just seeps off the page to me, the pride of this statement, if he was who he said he was, if. We see the judgment in which this Pharisee begins to impugn upon Jesus. If he was this, then he would have known what kind of woman she was, and he wouldn't let her do that to him. 
He wouldn't let her come and just weep all over him. He wouldn't let her come and just disrupt what's going on. He wouldn't come in and let this happen. He wouldn't let her touch him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Hmm. And he answered, say it, teacher. I can almost, maybe this is me kind of feeling the depth of the scripture myself and realizing the own pride that I carry in my own heart. Say it, teacher. Can you hear that, the pride that rings out? A certain moneylender had two debtors. One, he owed, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them love him more? Simon answered, uh, the one, I suppose, for whom canceled the largest debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, if that would have been me, I would have said, thank you, Captain Obvious, right? It's obvious who this woman is. It's obvious who is more relieved of their debt. It's obvious what's going on to everyone except Simon. Turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? Now, this is an interesting statement to me because as I read this, do you see this woman? Again, it's the obvious. Everyone had seen the woman. But he's not here to point out the obvious. What he is to do is saying, you want to judge? You think you're a right judge? You think your heart is good enough to judge? Then let's judge. You see this woman? Put her right next to you, buddy. Do you see her heart? I'm going to put it right next to yours. You see, Jesus has the ability to do this. You know why? Because he was the one who's righteous and pure. But when we need to read this, we don't need to see this as Jesus coming in as the prideful, arrogant judge. Jesus comes in as the humble servant. And what he's hoping to do is say, Simon, let me help you out, buddy. Let me, let me throw you a bone. Listen up. This is a good one right here. He says, you've just judged this woman based on what you think is right or wrong. But let's put the two side by side. Let's put apples with apples, oranges with oranges. Let's compare the two. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. Mm. This was a basic custom that you gave to anybody who walked into the door of your home. This was a common courtesy. He didn't offer to wash his feet or even provide water for him to do that. But she has wept my feet with her tears. You didn't offer me this basic customary thing, but she, with her own tears, her own sorrows has poured them out on my feet. And she has wiped them away with her hair. You gave me no kiss. This would have been a customary greeting. Uh, if you know any Italians, you've seen this in full display. We have some friends that are Italians, and I mean, they're full-on Italians. And when they meet another Italian, I mean, it's like a love fest. I'm like, should I turn my head? And it's nothing rude, nothing wrong. It's just there's a friendly kiss on the cheek. And especially to a son. When a son walks in the room, the father grabs his son 
And you see the love pouring, and he kisses on his cheek, and he's like, proud, I love you, son. And another common courtesy, which was given a guest, especially a guest of honor, he does not extend. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment or perfume. Therefore, I tell you, here Jesus sits as judge and says, therefore, I tell you, listen to this. He doesn't tell the woman this, not yet, but he looks at Simon and says, this is what I tell you. This is my judgment. This is my decree. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, today I want to help you make sense of our world. We're about to enter into this series, um, which I was kind of glad when Pastor John approached me and said, hey, I, I want to do this. Check this out. And I watched this series and I was like, oh yeah, we have a very smart pastor. Very timely word that will be coming to us. And I want to encourage you, if, if you're able to be here, be here. If you can't, we're going to stream it live, be live and, and watch this. This right here is going to um, open some things for you. It's going to help bring truth and some understanding of how we're going to navigate our culture in this next coming year. But today I want to stand here and help you make sense of our world. You see, we're in the middle of a deconstruction phase in our society. You may not realize it, um, and this is the reason why I want to preach this morning, because uh, I would much rather be a person right now whose head is in the sand. Uh, to be honest, I would. But I can't do that. There's something inside me that won't allow me to do that. There's something inside me that pulls to know what truth is and what darkness is and how do we convey it and how do I share that with you today. You see, all the institutions around us have crumbled or either are crumbling. Everything is broken. If there's nothing that's been more evident right now in this time, especially this political season, is everything has been destroyed. Everything is broken. Everything has fallen. There's only one that remains. That's the church. I want you to catch the gravity of this statement. Everything has crumbled. The banking industry has crumbled. You don't believe me? Next month, a quarter of our cash, our quarter of our amount of U.S. money will be reinvested, reprinted, and shot into the economic system, crashing our dollar by 25%. This will only match another 25% that's been going over the last few months. You don't think our banking system's broken? How much do we owe in debt? Our education system's broken. If you're a teacher in this class, in this place, you can echo that sentiment. Education no longer happens in our schoolrooms. In fact, they've sent them home with you. They've put them on a television screen, and our kids are crying and weeping as they sit in front of a, tree, a screen trying to learn. If you don't believe our political system is broken, turn on the news. Our judicial system is broken. Everything is broken except the church. 
You know why the church remains? Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Pastor John made this statement this morning. It's a beautiful statement. He says, every culture that has rose up against the church is gone. Every power, every ideology that has rose up against the church is gone. The only thing remaining is the church. And I want to submit to this to you before I move on, is that America will enter a rebuilding phase. We we will rebuild somehow. What that looks like, I don't know. But if the church is not forefront in this, then the church and the gospel will be left out. If you and me are not first and foremost in that, we will see it be destroyed. You may be Daniel. I don't know. I don't know what tomorrow holds. This isn't about being dismal. This is about seeing the the future and knowing where we stand because God will give us a voice in these circles if we'll hold on to him. And some of you need to pray about that. Maybe God is calling you into a new institution, into a new level. Maybe he's calling you to build a business that honors God and not runs after the dollar. Maybe he's calling you to enter politics. Maybe he's calling you to extend into some of these circles. For a long time, the church has sat on the sidelines. And we are in this place because we've sat on the sidelines. When they said you couldn't pray in school, the church said, okay, we'll just pray at home. We'll just pray to ourselves. You see, something particular happened at the end of World War II. Winston Churchill looked at America after Japan fell. And he made one request. Because Japan was about to enter a rebuilding stage. They was going to rebuild their culture. We had just gone through, dropped the atomic bomb. I can't imagine how devastating that was on those people and their culture. And he looked at America and he said, send missionaries. Send missionaries. He made an appeal to the American church. He said, send missionaries. You know why? Because England didn't have the church to send missionaries. You know who America sent? Bankers. We sent bankers. Oh, well, they're, they're destroyed financially, so we got to rebuild their financial systems. we got to rebuild this institution of finance. What's the church? It's a sin churches. We need to rebuild their center and their core of religion. You know why he would say that? Because he understood the Japanese people. The Japanese people, when, when we had dropped the bomb and they had, def- they had surrendered, that was their God that had just been defeated. And he knew that. And he said, they're going to be a broken people religiously. And if we don't send them the gospel, they will not know how to rebuild. Japan is the hardest place today to send the gospel. It is not opposed to the gospel. It is not violent to the gospel. But it is a wall to the gospel. There are more Christians in Pakistan than there are in Japan. You see, since Satan can't destroy the church, he offers an alternative. For years, we've known this as secular humanism. For some of you that don't don't understand that, I'll explain it to you. Secular humanism says that we, now understand this, they want you to believe that it's a collective we, but understand that we meaning professionals. We create our own meaning and value, that man is the measure of all things. He is the ultimate autonomous authority. 
He is a law unto himself, and his thoughts are not subject to divine relation, and it is the basis of our ethics. Mankind. We are the strength. We decide our own selves. This, give, this gave us relative, um, what am I trying to say? Relativism, yes. Where morality is subjective. It's subjective to the person who speaks it. My eternal view is my own. But the problem with this is it doesn't stand the test of time because what you end up with is a bunch of disillusioned people who are mad. And we're seeing that play out right now. There's a bunch of disillusioned people who are mad. They're just mad. There's no reasoning. There's no sense. You can't talk common sense. You can't talk reasoning. They're just mad, and they want to pour out their wrath and their madness on other people. And so at the end of secular humanism, we see a spinoff of that that's rising up. We call it wokeism. Many of you people who are awake today, you're hearing this. People maybe ask you, are you woke? Wokeism may be known as critical theory. Critical theory says that it's a critique of culture and how you enter in this religion, and trust me, it's a religion. They'll tell you it's not, but as soon as you look into it and you talk to these people, it is a religion. This is their religion. And it offers a critique of culture. It challenges the constructs. In other words, you become the judge. And you are to look at culture and you're to judge it as immoral. And you look at privileged groups and you judge them as immoral because these privileged groups have created institutions to impress, to imprison less privileged groups. And justice is to rob them of their power and dismantle those institutions and to redistribute their wealth and power to those who were oppressed. This is the ideology that's being spent today in our culture. And this ideology wants to push you into two camps. They want to divide our culture. They want to divide people. They want to judge between people. They want to become the judge and the authority that demands what happens and what will take place. And then through this judgmentalism, they want to put you and divide you in these two cultures, being a hero or a villain. And if you will not be divided, then you will be demoralized. You will be doxed. All of this theology, this ideology comes from Nietzsche. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He was a Greek philosopher who brought us secular humanism. But he said, those who summoned all of their powers and became overmen or supermen, overcoming the terror, is inspired by the cosmic chaos. This is what's his definition of a hero. You see, the Greek culture, the Roman culture was built on this idea of heroes and they made their gods and they shaped their gods into the form of hero. And if you wanted to be a hero in culture, then you needed to grab some aspect of that god. You needed to be able to take on something of that god, attach it to yourself, and rise up above the enemy. And it pushed people to be heroes and it made heroes of men who could do special things. And it was all built on heroism. And then along comes this Christian culture that says, the slave has value. It says the weak and the humble have value. That Jesus loves the brokenhearted. He loves the weak. And it opposed this Greek ideology that the ultimate end was to be a hero. Rather than to submit yourself to the authority of Christ and become his servant. And so these ideas have been at war for centuries. Trust me, this is nothing new. It just has a new name. 
So it wants to put you as a hero, someone who is woke, who virtue signals, or as a social justice warrior, which that term has nothing to do with justice. It has everything to do with revenge. Or it categorizes you as the victim, and you're sheltered from criticism. See, if you're the victim, you get to be sheltered from criticism. No one can criticize you if you're a victim, if you claim victimhood status. We've seen this. If a woman says that she's raped, it doesn't matter if you have evidence or anything. We saw that in the Kavanaugh hearings. All you got to do is say it, and it just, it's true. If you're a victim, then you can't be criticized. No, they're a protected group of people. They're justified. Now, you wonder why I may be talking about this today. Because this ideology has moved its way into the church. It is moving its way into the church. The enemy wants to plant these ideas in the church so that he can destroy the church. But church, you know what? Jesus rules and he reigns and he's the ultimate authority. But it's imperative that we know and we understand these things. Because here's what many of them will say. They'll define victimhood as this way, that a victim is someone who shares the infinite merit of Jesus' passion and death to share the redemption of sinful man. They will tell you that your salvation comes through your victimhood status. They will tell you that salvation, your justification, your righteousness comes by being the victim and that religion has been this oppressive oligarch which you must rise up to tear down and destroy. This is a movement that's been going on as far as I can look back. I remember it about uh, 19 years back. I was introduced to this through a man named Rob Bell, who very subtly presented this idea. You see, a victim, this victimhood status, it gives you an identity. Your identity comes through your race, your sex, or your gender. It gives you a baptism, a baptism into wokeism. Are you woke? It gives you a sacrament through virtue signaling. Or as one person kindly put it, never mind. It gives you a heaven through Marxism. It gives you purpose through rioting, bullying, or protesting. It identifies sin as privilege. It offers truth through liberalism or mental enlightenment. It offers discipleship through sensitivity training. And it offers excommunication through cancel culture. You see, they seek to give you moral justification or righteousness through your works, through your acts of social justice, but it never offers forgiveness. Do you catch this? <clears throat> Victimism, this victimhood status, it gives you an identity through your race, your sex, or your gender. The gospel gives you identity through Christ. It gives you a baptism. We watched baptism this morning. We understand what that is. But it's a baptism through being woke. You have to proclaim yourself as woke. And you do this by virtue signaling. It gives you the sacraments. And the sacraments are virtue signaling. We see the sacraments as, as baptism. We see it as communion. These are sacred things that we hold that identify this is your symbolism of being part of the Christian community. As I take communion and I'm baptized. This signifies me as being a believer in Jesus Christ. What signifies you as being woke or a victim is that you virtue signal. It gives you a heaven called Marxism. It gives you a purpose. We identify our purpose through Jesus Christ, through being his workmanship, through the thing that he puts on his heart. But they give you a purpose through rioting, through bullying others, or through protest. 
It identifies sin through privilege. You see, it says you're a victim or you're the oppressor. And there's this idea that in Christianity that Jesus is the victim, and I'm going to get into this in a little bit, but that Jesus now becomes the victim. And this is what they want to portray to you and send to you, that Jesus is the victim, therefore you are the victim. You're not the victim, you are the villain. Villain. You are the one who's perpetrated your sins against Jesus. You are the one who have been complicit. You have been fully engaged in every one of your sins, and if you haven't seen that, then you haven't been awakened to the gospel. Because as believers, we become awakened to the day where we have sinned against God. It was David who looked before the Lord and he said, before you, God, alone have I sinned. And when we begin to see the depth of our sin, then our hearts will be opened and we'll we'll begin to see the light of his grace. You see, it offers discipleship through sensitivity training. And it offers excommunication through cancel culture. You see, this is a religion. And the danger of this religion is it plays on your motives. It plays on your compassion. It plays on your desire for justice. It plays on your idea to make things better. It it plays on your desire for peace. You see, there's a war on language in our culture. I have been screaming this for 16 years, and it is fully evident now more than ever. There is a war on language. If you haven't noticed this, please wake up and see this. The culture will take a word. They will hijack that word. They will change the meaning of that word. But they will then reinsert that word back into the narrative. You think it means this. They believe it means this. They will do that over and over again to subtly draw you into their side so that you are agreeing with them so that then they turn around and drop the bomb and then you have to go, well, I I guess I believe that. I, I don't know. And we sit in a war on language. And I remember being a youth pastor in the days when Wikipedia started. Can you tell how many times I looked at my teenagers and said, Wikipedia, it's the devil. People do not get to decide, you can't just change the definition of a word on a whim. Apparently Merriam-Webster thinks they can, but you can't change the definition of a word on a whim. It doesn't just change with culture. Words have meaning. Words have value. You know why? Because word becomes the construct of language. And without language, we don't exist as a culture. I'll give you an example. The word justice. You and me would typically mean that as the equal treatment of others. Right? What's just? Being equally treated under the law, being equally treated in our transactions, being treat equal as equal partners, equal people. There's an equality in justice. The new definite just, just the definition of justice is revenge. I get to enact my justice on you. I get to enact my revenge on you. Why? Because you represent an ill an immoral institution a construct, and we must tear it down. I read this from a Christian blog. I want to read this to you. If you don't believe me that this is coming in the church, that this is a subtle nuance that they're trying to move into the church, listen to this statement. Jesus was a victim, and he identifies with all in society who are victims. 
Jesus was a victim, and he identifies with all in society who are victims. You know, the thing about a victim, a victim's powerless. A victim has no rights. They have no ability. They have no means on their own. Do you see the danger of that statement? This would be pastors, church leaders who would say this. And you're going to see that in this video, that they are outright at this point attacking the deity of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the authority of Christ, the person of Christ, the Godhead of Christ. And they want to do it through a victim status by making Jesus the victim of your sin. But can I read to you what Jesus himself says in John 10, verse 18? No one takes it, meaning his life, no one takes it from me. Catch, no one, nothing. But I lay down my life on my own accord. I have the authority, not me, but speaking for Jesus. This is Jesus' word. He says, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge have I received from my Father. Jesus' journey to the cross was not something that was imposed upon him. It was not something his Father did to him to get back at him or to correct him or to deal with a rebellious child. The, the idea of Jesus to go to the cross was his ideal along with the Father to redeem you, to express and show his love for nature, for Christ, for, I mean, for people, for humanity, and to redeem them out of the brokenness, out of the darkness, out of the sin that holds us and keeps us captive. It was his plan before earth even started. He knew this idea. He had submitted to this idea before earth even came into existence. You see, there's a man who did a study on torture. This is typically not a topic we study, but this is going to help build this point. And he said that what happens when people are tortured, it puts them into two categories. And he said he, had, he identified them in two different ways. You, you have a response of one of two ways. He said the first response that most people have is they become so submissive to their torturer that they're willing to do whatever it is to make it stop. If it violates their moral grounds, they'll do it. If it violates their principles, they'll do it. Whatever they have to do to make it stop, they'll do it. And they're willing to do anything. He said, or it puts them in another category where they become so angry and embittered and enraged with rage that they become violent and attackive. That they rage out against their torturer. He said, there's only two camps. But yet when we see Jesus in his final days as he's being scorned and beaten as he's being punched, as his beard's being ripped out, as he's being mocked and ridiculed, as he goes through the most treacherous torture that Rome had devised. We see a man who stands before Pilate. Don't you catch this? And as he stands before Pilate, let me ask you, who's the one in fear? That's right, Pilate. Jesus isn't in fear. Study would tell us that torture puts you in fear or it puts you in anger. Jesus wasn't angry. In fact, when he's on the cross receiving the ultimate end of that torture, he looks at John and says, John, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. You know, he prepares, he provides for his mother on the cross. 
What man in his right mind does that? Every person wants to save themselves, that Jesus is honoring his mother on the cross. Jesus looks at, his, at the crowd and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he looks at the man to his side and he says, you're forgiven. Today you will be with me in paradise. This isn't the words of a madman. This is the words of someone who is fully in their own capabilities. Jesus was not the victim of some evil construct. Jesus was not the victim of your sin. Jesus is the full authority of, G of God in human flesh. And this is imperative that we hold this and keep this. The Pharisee would ask the question, who is this man who can forgive sins? Church, how do we answer that question? Who is this man who can forgive sins? You see, the book of Matthew, right after the story of John the Baptist, takes us into this narrative where Jesus says, all you who are heavy and weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And a lot of commentators will tell you that this precedes this story where this woman comes in and anoints Jesus. And they have to pose the question, did this woman sit here and listen to Jesus say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden? And was this her response to that message? You see, the thing is, we're all wearied. We're all heavy laden. We're all shackled with some weight of some kind of another. And if it's not your own, the world will throw it on you. You feel the shackles of your job. You feel the shackles of your marriage. You feel the shackles of being a parent. You feel the shackles of life, of paying bills. You feel these shackles. We feel these shackles. We feel these weights. And Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you rest. So today I ask you, what is your story? You see, all of us, if we're not careful, can carry a story with us that's not the story of God or the story that God has written for us. The story we carry can be littered with chapters of unhealthy pain, unhealed pain, distorted perspectives, and wrong theologies. We can carry that story into many different situations and we can project it onto others or our future encounters. But we've been given a chance to address our story to replace it with a story that Christ is offering, a story of healing and wholeness. The question becomes, do you really want to be healed? Do you really want to be whole? Do you really want to enter his rest? You see, in this story, our worth and our identity doesn't come from our circumstances or our place in society for the Pharisee, he was identified by his social structures or his achievements. The woman was identified by her circumstances, her placement in life. And Jesus offered both of them a new identity based on his design. You catch that? He offered both of them a new identity. You see, my worth and my identity comes from my creator. And I'm identified divinely, and I'm initiated divinely. Divinely, my identity comes. It initiates me and it activates me. Therefore, we are accountable unto God. And this is why people don't want to be identified by Christ because if I'm identified by Christ, then not only do I share in his inheritance, but I am held accountable for how I'm defined. 
Why? Because somehow I have to live up to that identity. Now, we as believers, we understand that Christ gives us the ability to live that out. He sanctifies us. He does that sanctifying work in us. But if we try to stand in our own righteousness, our own judgment, then we will carry that burden ourselves. We'll be like the Pharisee. The second thing Jesus offers is redemption. You see, he is the hero of the story. He's the hero. He's the victor. He's the one that takes on Goliath and and tears him down. He is the one who wins. He is the one who destroys darkness and sin. I heard a preacher one time preaching. I won't call it his name because many of you listen to him. He did. He preached the story of David and Goliath, and he looked at his crowd and said, you are the victor. And I remember screaming at, the, <laughs> at him from a, through the device I was singing on. No, Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the one who overcomes my enemy. Jesus is the one. The typology of David is not for me to see myself as David. It's me to see myself as the Israelites who are standing in fear going, who's going to defeat Goliath? And then a young warrior steps out and and takes him down. You see, we say, but this doesn't enter the church. You know, we we don't let this idea enter the church, do we? There was a book that came out not too long ago by a a guy named Seth uh, Godwin. Seth Godin. Um, I have several of his books on my my bookshelf. I'll share them with you. Most of them are on marketing. This guy understands marketing. When I was in the business world, I read a lot of his books. Um, very insightful in the ideas of marketing, not very insightful in theology. But he wrote a book called Tribes. And through the Christian church, this book circulated. Everybody was like, oh, you got to read this book. It's the best book. You got to read this book. Oh, you got to get this book. You gotta get... Everybody was like, you got to get this book. And so then this idea of tribalism began to rise up in the church. And um, preachers would tell other preachers, you got to build your tribe. And they would tell your, their leaders, you've got to go build your tribe. You see, what tribalism says is the only thing that exists is power, and therefore you must gain power by whatever means necessary. Now, they didn't use these words because they don't want you to, if they told you that, you would be like, oh, no, that's all right. But they use subtle language, and so they, what they would tell you is you have to go build your tribe. You have to pull your tribe together and get your tribe motivated to one goal. You got to pull your people together and you got to get them together and you got to communicate with them and you got to do all this thing to build your, your tribe up so that you can win. So that you can get power. You must grow your tribe. You see, redemption came through what others, for the Pharisee, his redemption came through what others thought of him. It came through his order. The woman had no hope of redemption. Brooke, you can come on up. But Jesus offers complete forgiveness. He offers the opportunity to come into his rest. You see, wokeism Tribalism, victimhood offers no justification. Jesus offers justification by grace and grace alone through Christ alone. Victimhood says, I'm justified because the system is corrupt. It's immoral. It's not just. It's unfair. Because they're not just, I'm okay. For the Pharisee, his justification came through his goodness, his works, his ability, his perceptions of himself. For the woman, culture offered no possibility of justification. That was her lot in life, and she was stuck to it. 
But Jesus freely offers grace. You see, the more we perceive ourselves as righteous, the less we love. Self-righteousness that's earned never produces love. So the question today comes, do you want to be made whole? Church, I'd ask you today, do you want to be made whole? Online, I'd ask you, do you want to be made whole? You see, this is the question that, the guy, that God, Jesus asked the man at the pool of Bethesda. He says, hey, you want to be made whole? You see, there's a paradox. There's a problem in that question because if you answer no, then you look like the fool. I mean, yeah, who doesn't want to be made whole? Who doesn't want to be made right? But if I answer yes, then I have to take on the responsibility as to why I haven't done anything to make myself whole. You see, there's a paradox. And so the man couldn't answer yes or no, so he goes, well, it's somebody else's fault. Nobody's putting me in the water, and I don't have enough money to bribe anybody to put me in. It's not my fault. And Jesus would say, do you want to be made whole? But it's not my fault. Do, Do you want to be made whole? You see, because victimization doesn't and it can't answer the question. Because it draws a line in the sand and says, what would you, what can you do? But not only that, it draws a line in the sand and says, what is required of you from this day forward? You see, the problem with being made whole is that you've got to leave your victimhood status. The problem with being made whole is you've got to leave your scars. The problem with being made whole is you've got to find a new way to live. And this world offers you nothing. You see, it creates a paradox for us. And if you view yourself as a victim, you'll never be made whole. But if you see Jesus walk into the room and he goes, do you want to be made whole? When you see Jesus walking in through and he says, come unto me, all those who are heavy laden and, and burdened down and weary. Come to me and I will give you rest. And if you will let those words penetrate your heart, you'll be like the woman.